Welcome to Encountering Beauty, a series of podcasts brought to you by Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and in these podcasts we'll be exploring the enduring relevance and resonance of what have long been some of the most revered and versatile materials that artists have had at their disposal. In each conversation, I'll be joined by two art dealers who exhibit at the leading art fair that is Masterpiece London, experts in different artistic fields that nevertheless share particular materials between them. We'll explore everything from ceramic to wood and from pigments to precious stones, discussing how artists have handled, worked or transformed these materials and why they're prized by collectors today. In this episode, we'll be hearing about the marvels of marble, a material that since antiquity has captured the imaginations of sculptors and architects. Across cultures and centuries, it has conveyed power, grandeur and endurance, and yet it has also been the substance of some of the most humane and intimate sculptures that we know, and of delicate designs. I'm delighted to be joined by Alessandra Di Castro, whose family has been dealing antiques in Rome since 1878, and whose renowned gallery in Piazza di Spagna focuses on old master paintings, sculptures, and works of art. And by Francis Sultana, one of the world's leading interior and furniture designers, and CEO of David Gill Gallery. It's great to have both of you with me. Hi, Tom. Thank you. Let's kick off by setting the scene and asking both of you, Alessandra, first, why Marvel is so fundamental to the fields that you specialize in? Well, as you said, I'm an antique dealer in Rome, and marble, porphyry, granites, and more in general, semi-precious stones have always played a crucial role in Roman art. From ancient times, from the Rome of the emperors to the present day, and Imperial Rome was the capital of polychrome marble, and this material was coming not only from uh, quarries from the neighborhood, from uh, central Italy, but also from Greece, from Turkey, from uh, North Africa. Uh, even today, Rome hosts countless examples of this incredible phenomenon. I think it's interesting that perhaps something we'll talk about later. In a sense, when people are working with marble, they might be collecting different types of marble rather than just collecting things made out of marble. Uh, Francis, tell me why marble is so fundamental to your work. Well, you know, as a gallery, I mean, we've always commissioned works using very much the noblest of materials. And, and marble through history has always remained very strong and a very wonderful and powerful medium for artists to use to interpret their work. I mean, we really love marble and what it can do. And actually, as technology has increased with the way artists work today, its use has become quite contemporary and designers and artists today are challenged by what they can achieve with marble. So we actually really enjoy the process of now working in a contemporary sense with one of the earliest mediums to create art and the decorative arts. People haven't got bored of it yet. No, I think there's a lot still to do with marble. So, I, I mean, Francis, thinking back to your, I suppose, earlier days of becoming a designer, was there a moment where you sort of first had a revelation about what was possible with it? Well, I came from Malta, so a bit lower down than Alessandra in, in the beauty of Rome. But Malta, again, a very high Catholic, Baroque, you know, artistic place. 
you know, as a, as a child, you go to churches where you're just surrounded by marble everywhere. Marble is a material that is used in many homes quite consistently. So marble is something that you've always grown up around, even from an architectural point of view and a place of worship, etc. So it's in built in your DNA, so to speak. So, you know, I saw marble as a child and, of course, being bored at mass, most days I'd be looking at the architecture and the interior of churches and looking at the different colors of marbles and patterns and and the way it was placed and used to decorate so for me my memories as a child I suppose have kept that sense of the importance and the beauty of marble. I wonder whether in your mind it still has a sense that you are somehow worshipping it instead of worshipping something else. Yeah, I think most children, when the attention span of a sermon is really boring, you have to look at other things. I think in my point of view, I was already taking in the surroundings because, you know, from an early age, I knew that interiors was something that were really important to me. didn't quite understand why, but I suppose being around such strong decoration in interiors as a child left a lasting impression and probably even to today. It has inspired my work and remains to inspire my work. And also, while editing artists and designers for the gallery for their collections, has a very strong fundamental hold on the direction and the editing of the of the pieces we do. And Alessandra, I suppose you might tell me too that marble is somehow in your DNA. But is there a moment you can remember or an object you can remember that really revealed to you the possibilities of the material? No, because it goes back to really my childhood. So that there's not a there are people. I mean, I was born in 1967, and Marmora Romana, a crucial book, came out in 1971. Raniero Gnoli, the author who was on here today, a leading expert in the field, basically started by a famous treatise called the Trattato delle Pietre or a Treatise on Stones by a Roman lawyer named Faustino Corsi, it was published in the 19th century. And so what happened is that this field, which was forgotten for many years, came out in the imagination, not only for art historians and specialists and museums, directors, but also for collectors. It became very, very, very important. And there was a whole world around my shop where my father used to take me of restorers of marmorari, and I want also to remember someone, a woman called Priscilla Medici Grazioli. She inherited one of the most important workshops where restorations of Roman basilicas, of palazzi, of galleries were, were handled. And she taught me a lot. She taught me the names of these of this marbles, how to recognize them, how to classify them. And it's a magic world. I think this is a really important thing about Rome, that you're surrounded by marble and marbles that have been used and then reused and marbles that are in the process of being reused in these workshops and so on. It's, perhaps it's almost the principal material of Rome, would you say? You know, the imperial Rome was, marble meant a status symbol. And I would say from Catholic Rome, from and then Byzantine period, and medieval, and then the Renaissance, Everyone was trying to rival that splendor, that magnificence. But of course, each period has its own style and ideas and, and uses marbles with a different mentality. And it's incredible. Let's think about that 
material and why it's been deemed so versatile by so many different sculptors, designers, and architects throughout centuries. I mean, in terms of actually the qualities, the properties of this rock, what is it that appeals so much? First of all, the veins. When you open a marble, you can have extraordinary forms and they can be very inspiring for artists. I think of Santa Sofia in Istanbul, you know, those marble slabs where you see when, when the marble is open, a macchia aperta. And when I think of the Pietra Paesina, where the 17th century painters could uh, paint the landscapes, uh, starting from the veins uh, of the materials. It's very challenging for the imagination of an artist, but maybe Francis is, uh, has more to say about that. Well, I think now, I mean, to be honest, there is so much that can be done with marble in, in the way it can be curved and cut into. I mean, obviously with different marbles, there's difficult, different physical properties to them, depending on, on which type and from where they're quarried, etc. But I mean, what was quite interesting for me was quite a few years ago, now going back, the late Zaha Hadid, God rest her soul, who was a dear friend. She was one of the, the main people at the time who said to me, Francis, you know, you can do a lot with marble. You, we need to experiment with marble. You know, people don't go far enough with it. And, you know, one of her most enduring sentences to me is that there should be no end in experimentation, she used to say. And she, as a woman architect who actually did so much to create her own language of her work, crossed many a boundary with many materials, but one that was super challenging was marble because the beauty in her work, which was feminine yet very strong, challenged any material she used, including her buildings. And when it moved on to furniture with us, it was really interesting to see how far she wanted to push a material and to see how technically actually viable it became. So this experimentation led into creating some very, very beautiful and some very important works in furniture that crossed the boundary of furniture to become in their own way sculpture. And for me, Zaha was one of the designers that led the way that we know a lot more now in the contemporary sense about using marble in a very contemporary way today to create great design pieces for future history. Is it true that one of the reasons why marble has been so attractive to artists is that it is quite a soft metamorphic rock or series of, of rocks that it can therefore be worked relatively easily? Alessandra, what do you think of that? I don't think it is that easy. No, the challenge was to work also very difficult materials. I'm thinking again about porphyry, the most famous marble of the imperial time was so hard to work and the technique was lost. And I remember when I was a child, it was taken by my father to someone called Fiorentini and he rediscovered the technique of this marble, working it by hand, which was unbelievable. It's so hard that it has to be worked with diamonds. So, and, and I think about the challenge of polishing these hard stones like jaspers. And then you, you get this unbelievable polishing and it looks like a mirror. So no, I would say that the challenge is to understand what the nature of the material is and bring out the best out of it. But I suppose one of the things that is possible 
at least in sculpture, Renaissance and Baroque sculpture, has been the ability of some of the greatest artists to make it look like it's soft. That marble can look like stone or it can look like flesh or it can look like drapery. Is that something that's intrinsic to, to the marble and perhaps particularly to Carrara marble, that it has that ability to transform itself into other things? One thing sort of marble is something cold. There's nothing warmer in the feeling. Yes, in that respect, you're right. I'm thinking about the work of the Cosmateschi, who make these beautiful brandles of, of very hard stones into beautiful roses. I'm thinking about the marble tops of the 16th and 17th century, when you have this extraordinary combination of very different material altogether. And of course, it's a, it's a language. You have to know the rules. You have to know how this materials, they work well together, and there is a very harmonious combination that was known by the artist, and you have to, actually, you have to study a lot to understand it and to speak that language. Francis, thinking about the contemporary approaches to marble and thinking about technique, would you say that modern methods, even machinery, industrial sort of methods, have allowed different uses of the raw material? I think what technology has done has given the ability to do more technically difficult work because, you know, the creations are done with 3D design, etc. And the method of machinery available is, is super high now. But at the end of it all, it still needs the human touch for the final polishing and, and having the sense of feeling. It is, at the end of the day, an organic material, something, you know, created, it's there, it's not something man-made. Um, there's been many an imitation of marble, I mean, going back like to Scagliola, which is for me the most noble of all the, the compositions to make a, an effect of marble. But marble will always regain something that has the natural component and the complexity of it and the uniqueness of each slab that's excavated makes that each piece is, is so unique. Even when you look at Carreras, for instance, no two blocks of Carreras could there ever be alike. So even when you create things, there's a different warmth of whites. And it's, I mean, if I'm choosing blocks of marble, you know, I need to see sometimes 10 to choose the right one. And they know how fussy I can be, whether it's for a bathroom or whether it's to produce some table or to create a, a bench made completely out of marble. So, there are connoisseurs when it comes to marble, but also, you know, artists and designers today, the ones that like to work in this medium, teach themselves in a way, in the contemporary way, what they want in their vision. And then with the people from the industry, who many have been generation after generation, they learn, like I learn a lot about what is technically possible with the stone, because like all things, some stones are harder than others, some are softer than others. So it's a very interesting material to use. Just to go back to your selection of a block from 10 blocks you've been shown, have you actually visited quarries as well, Francis? Does it go that far for you? I used to. I, mean, I haven't been to a quarry now in more than a decade. It is a very interesting place to go. I mean, I went to quarries in Carrera. And it's a very strange place. It was, I think, the last time it was this time of year, it was winter. And to stay a night in Porto de Marmi in an empty hotels where it's desolate. And then to go to quarries to be shown and to be literally covered in dust when you're walking. 
but there's a beauty when you see the scale of the quarries or the blocks that they show you the people involved are so passionate about it and but you know italy is the hub for marble there is no other place in the world the dealers are all based from there for the market internationally and i have to say it's a lovely experience, but one has to have a lot of time in, in to be able to do these things. So now, sadly, I have to send people out if I, if I can't tell from images what I've sent. Can I add something on quarries? Because, you know, I mentioned Marmora Romana, I mentioned the other people studying this field, but recently what has been very much studied is the history of the quarries, because we can tell you a lot about when these materials were excavated, and they can be very precious for understanding also the ancient objects, when they were made, because it's like a field of studies on its own. And once I visited Paros, you know, this beautiful Greek island with this amazing milky white marble, and you can visit the quarries, they are accessible to the public. And I think it's one of the most unbelievable experiences I had, uh, you can have in your life. This sparkling white material, you go inside and you see this incredible color shining. The, the whole island actually is shining. And Alessandra, would you say that it's quite important to have this knowledge or to start to grow this knowledge of the sources of the stones to get more of a feeling for how artists have transformed them into artworks? Yes, it's crucial. Collectors in Rome in the 19th century that they were building collections, the Campionari, and they built these collections of templars of marbles after the treaties of Faustino Porti. And it was a field research. And actually, I had the, the chance to find two of these beautiful campionari. And each sampler had the name of the marble written on the other side. It's important to date some of these objects. There are forgeries. There are objects that were ancient forgeries. They were trying to imitate objects of the past. Even the Romans were trying to imitate Greek art. So since then, you really have to study a lot and to build your own experience to identify and to understand this field. And, and of course, marble sculptures, vases, uh, architectural pieces, columns. When we talk about marble, it's not just a sculpture, but it's a huge a very vast field of arts. Well, we're talking about everything from the floor of Westminster Abbey to the Taj Mahal, aren't we? Absolutely. Having said that, with smaller objects, I suppose marble is a material that is quite cold to the touch often, quite smooth often, although it doesn't have to be. It can be a rougher finish. How important have you both found touch and handling marble to thinking about it and its qualities for artwork? Well, you know, I think marble in itself, you want to touch it. There's something about it. It may not be as tactile as some other materials, but I think, you know, when you see something, because obviously it is so sculptural, that you have a sense to touch almost stroke a piece of marble. I mean, it's, it's a strange sensation. I think, you know, even now with some of the work that we're seeing at the gallery, that they're using actual models of marble antiquity, 3D printing it with the licensing from museums and institutions, and using these elements 
as part of, in a sense, contemporary pieces of furniture. So from what was originally a sculpture in history has now become an element into a piece of 21st century design, paying homage to the antiquity and the journey of, you know, sculpture through history. So it's, it's actually an interesting process, but and the roughness and the smoothness of, of the way that marble is used by designers today is one of the integral parts of their design process. So they're looking at the madness, the shiny, the, the sensuality of it, the rigidity of it, and playing with it and other materials to juxtapose it all together to, at the end of the day, deliver a piece of design for what we do as David goes a gallery, because it's a design-led, more decorative art-based gallery. So our relationship with the material is to, to bring it into the realm of the decorative arts and furniture. And so the context of how it is used is for it to work with that. So for me, polishing is a key, it's a crucial aspect, and it imparts vigor, energy, and I would say splendor to materials that have crossed the centuries. And so for me, when I have to expertise a piece, I use my eyes and I use my hands. I need to feel the polishing and it has to be uneven. Let me ask both of you to finish. What collectors need to be on the lookout for when they're shopping for objects or sculptures made of marble? Alessandra, what do they need to know about the condition of objects made out of marble? You know, as with every successful and the popular object of the antique trade, the forgers, unfortunately, are always lurking, also because it's very difficult to figure out the period of a marble work. And the absence of a kind of patina that, for instance, you can find in wood or other materials can be very misleading. So I think it's really necessary to turn to antique dealers who have a solid tradition behind. And Francis, when you're thinking about marble in interiors and working with clients, what is the best way to display the, this material? Are there ways of thinking about it in relation to lighting? And, and... Well, you know, marble has no end to its, you know, to the variety and how it can be used. I think with marbles and, let's say, objects and furniture in a contemporary sense, I think, you know, going to what Alessandra says in the antiquity market, it, it is a more complex situation as well when you're looking at things. In a contemporary sense today, when people are looking at the new, they shouldn't be, in my view, afraid of using marble as an old-fashioned material because it actually remains, will always be contemporary. I mean, the interesting thing about going back to quarries that Alessandra pointed out, I had no idea that some quarries are extinct. Some marbles, many marbles are actually extinct today. You cannot get them. So you can find beautiful objects from the 17th, 18th, 19th century made in a marble that today can no longer be quarried. And in a contemporary sense today, when looking, I think you should, you should choose things that appeal to you. You love the colors, the veining, and today architects and designers and interior designers use marble in many ways. I mean, Italy is the main inspiration. They are the key, they have the best craftsmen, they have the, 
the best technical ability to do wonderful things with marble. And yet when you go to the United States, for instance, you have a lot of, I think like Italian immigrant families, like when I do a project in America, a home in America, the marble people have all had their origins in Italy. So the people are doing the bathrooms and the kitchens and the, the swimming pools, whatever, you know, they go to me, oh, where are you from? I go from Malta. Oh, my family came from Italy. And they are still engaging in the same trades as where they come from. It's quite funny. Marble has got that longevity, and yet it's contemporary. And that's what's so interesting about it. On that note of endurance and everlasting relevance, let me say thank you very much to Alessandra Di Castro and Francis Sultana for sharing their expertise. You've been listening to Encountering Beauty, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. Masterpiece Online takes place from the 23rd to the 27th of June, and the fair will return to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. Head to www.masterpiecefair.com for more information.